Good afternoon, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, an audience in the room and obviously uh, those online through the Cove. Uh, this afternoon we're reconvening for the second part of the, uh, the PME session um, hosted by Seven Brigade. Uh, just a reminder for those that are online and joining us for the first time, uh, on your uh, screen you should see a mobile number. Um, if you have any questions, please text them through to that number uh, and they'll be asked at the conclusion of the uh, respective presentations. Uh, include uh, also your name, rank and unit, please. Uh, and for those in the room, please highlight if you're in the room as well and wish to ask questions. This afternoon, we'll have two presentations from Major General Ryan, uh, who graduated from RMC in 1989 as a combat engineer uh, and only recently retired this year after a distinguished uh, career in the Australian Army. Uh, commanding appointments include uh, 1CR and the 1st Brigade, uh, and in January 2013 was appointed as uh, Director General of Strategic Plans in Army Headquarters, uh, and from February 2016 led the ed education, training and doctrine efforts as DG Tradop, uh, and then later appointed as Commander of Australian Defence College in January 2018. Uh, for those online, uh, the full bio can be found on the Cove site. Uh, today, Major General Ryan is here to present us uh, two presentations. Uh, firstly, on the complexities of combined arms, uh, drawing on some contemporary lessons out of the Ukraine. Uh, and secondly, to talk about some of those uh, planning considerations uh, and complexities that need to be considered uh, at brigade and below level in uh, planning and executing combined arms. Uh, sir, on behalf of the Commander, I invite you to uh, address those members here in the audience and uh, by the Cove. All right, um, thanks for having me here. It's great to be back in the theatre. It's great to be back among soldiers again, uh, which is the best place in the world to be. Um, who knows? where this is. Just country's fine. Ukraine. Ukraine. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So we've located, we've located the country. Who got cut up there? The Russians. Why did it happen? Anyone want to hazard a guess? Huh? Sorry? That's part of it. Yeah. Anyone else got? Mm, maybe. Yeah, that's part, maybe part of it. Anyone else? Mm -hmm. That might be part of it. Anyone else? Sorry. That's part of it. Possibly. I mean, there's a lot we don't know. Um, the reason it happened is because combined arms, assault river crossings are really, really hard. Like, who here has done a combined arms river crossing activity? Like, as in a brigade combined arms river crossing activity? I know you have, because we did them when you were a troop commander. <laughs> They're really hard. They're really hard when you don't have someone shooting at you. They're even harder when the person shooting at you is really, really well motivated to protect their homeland. So I know a lot of people can the Russians for their conduct, conduct of this. And there was a lot of stupid commentary like this was a deception operation or they weren't really trying and all this kind of, it's garbage. Combined arms operations are difficult. Combined arms, assault river crossings are probably the hardest thing to do in the face of the enemy. And you don't do them as a deception operation. You generally only have enough of these things to do them on your main effort. Okay, these things are tough. All right, so today 
I want to talk about building combined arms teams. I'm going to do it in the context of some things that are changing with the conduct of military operations around the world, because I think that broader context is important. And there's a bunch of trends that I'll cover, and then within those trends, I'll look at some lessons from the Russo-Ukraine war, which is ongoing, probably going to be going for a while yet. And then I'll finish up this presentation. We should be done by about 23.30, if that's all right, Mick. No, I wouldn't do that to you. Um, and then I'll just finish up with some observations for combined arms teams leaders, and then we'll uh, go to a break uh, somewhere around quarter past two or earlier. All right. I think this important question that we should all ask ourselves constantly. You don't do it once, you do it all the time. Why am I doing this? What's the purpose of my existence as a soldier? Now, you all have different answers. That's not a bad thing. This is mine. I always went back to this one. It's from a, an American scholar by the name of Williamson Murray, who's written a lot on military history, innovation, adaptation, building better military organisations. But this quote here, I think, is a really important one. War is neither a science nor an art. It's the incredibly complex endeavour which challenges men and women to the core of their soul. Okay? Then he talks about the cost of slovenly thinking at every level of war can translate into the deaths of innumerable men and women, most of whom deserve better from their leaders. That's you. That's us. That's our purpose. Okay? That's how I always saw my purpose. Okay? And it's a really, I think, important one to ponder for us all. All right, so what kind of world, what kind of army are you operating in at the moment? Well, it's one where there's a bit of change, but there's also a lot of continuity. Now, you can buy books by the hundreds on all the things that are new in war at the moment. You know, books like Kill Change, and Sean McFate stuff, there's a bunch of things, and they're all great. The reality is not everything's changing. There's a whole bunch of continuities that you should be aware of. These are the changes, we all know them. Geopolitics, strategic competition, climate change, demography, really interesting if you don't know about it, you should, how it's gonna change the international order over the next hundred years when China probably halves its population just because of one child policy. There's a whole lot of other things. Urbanisation means you're going to be fighting in cities more than we have historically. Okay, so there are things that are changing. Technology is disrupting how we think, how we fight, how we compete, how we do our day-to-day -day business, how we interact as societies. So there's a bunch of things changing, but there's a bunch of things that aren't changing. Okay, War isn't going away, regardless of what some of these decline of war theorists have said over the last 20 years. They're wrong, and they should know better, and they've peddled their nonsense and lulled the West into this fake sense of security, which the Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese and others are exploiting. Stephen Pink is a great example of it, but there's others out there. Okay, war ain't going away. The takeaway is, you're not going to be out of a job anytime soon. Okay? You're just not. A really important uncertainty is, sorry, un uh, continuity is, uncertainty will remain. Uh, Martin Van Creveld in his book on command calls command the constant 
search for certainty. And that has been a theme of commanders all the way since the first caveman picked up a rock and chucked it at his mate. All the way through. Okay? Uncertainty, regardless of technology, regardless of the mesh sensors and analytical algorithms we can use, uncertainty remains an important part of the environment in which you will be operating. If in doubt, just ask any Ukrainian or Russian at the moment. Okay, that's just the latest example of millions that go back into history. Good leadership, we've seen that once again. I mean, these are the kind of things that we have doctrine on because we know it matters. And we've known it for the entirety of the existence of our army and the existence of armies beforehand. Okay, that's an important continuity. And the other one, surprise. It's not going away. And I'll talk about that a little bit down the track. All right, so how does this change military activities? How does it change how you might think, how you might act in a 21st century military institution? I think there's seven trends. Uh, if anyone's read my book, I cover a lot of them in here, but I'll go through them. And for each of these trends, I wanna talk about where we're seeing them in the war in Ukraine. Give you some examples, okay? First one's this one, time. Now, I think as soldiers, we understand time's really important. But the reality is most people in government in particular do not value time. And if they do, the only kind of time they value is the 24-7 news cycle or the three to four year electoral cycle. Now, they're important. But things like hypersonics and AI mean that milliseconds are now important. It means the kind of fights that you might be in in future will be faster than a lot of your people can comprehend. What does that mean? And the other side of it is, we are now back in an environment where we're in a long-term strategic competition that will take place over decades. What does that mean for governments? Telling our people that defence budgets are going to be up by a lot for the next 20 years. Try selling that one at the next federal election. But they're gonna to have to do that. That's where we are. So we need to think differently about time. Where have we seen that in Ukraine? Lightning wars. Every great commander of history wants to do blitzkrieg, right? And it almost never works, okay? Even Blitzkrieg wasn't a lightning war. That was six weeks of hard fighting in May, June 1940, in which 50,000 German soldiers died. Hardly a lightning war. Okay. The march up to Baghdad, remember shock and awe, 2003? Well, we were still there 15 years later. Hardly a lightning war. And the Russians going in with soldiers with parade uniforms in their backpacks, for the victory parade in Kiev after 72 hours, found out yet again, the enemy gets a vote, okay? Enemy will change your conception of time right from the get-go, okay? So have a think about this. But we've also seen in Ukraine how different kinds of sensors, not just military sensors, but commercial, exploitation of social media have really compressed the detection to destruction time. 
When I was a brigade commander, we used to work on 10 minutes. If you saw a UAV, it was like, get out or you're dead in 10. It's not that anymore. I'm talking as short, in some instances in Ukraine, 90 seconds. That's not the norm, that has, that has happened, but the norm, three to five minutes, you've got to work on now. If you think you've been detected, you've got three to five minutes. For a gun battery, Jimmy, how long does it take you to get out of there? There you go. Some really interesting implications. How long does it take to move brigade TAC? Not mine, don't worry about them. How long does it take to move brigade TAC? More than three to five minutes? We've got to really think about time and how you use them in operations. All right, new age of mass. There's a whole lot of people who are saying we'll never see mass tank battles again. You know, tanks are dead. You've been hearing this idiotic narrative out of these twits in Canberra and, and Melbourne. Um, you know, you'll never see mass force-on-force, peer-on-peer battles again. Now, clearly, that was never true because in war, no idea ever disappears. They always come back. That's just how humans fight. We reach into the grab bag of ideas from the last thousand years and pick the one that works for us. So mass is back, but it's not the kind of mass our grandfathers and great-grandfathers would recognise. Mass is generated not by crude systems alone. It's generated by crude and uncrude systems in all the domains and the conduct of mass influence operations. And I'll talk about those shortly. What does that mean? It probably means as a brigade, there's going to have to be lots of you and you're going to be fighting lots and lots and lots of others, crude and uncrude systems. And with your soldiers, you're going to be, have, to be, have to be fighting a psychological battle where every single one of you is a target for influence and they're able to be influenced in a way with a precision and a discrimination physically and psychologically that's never existed before. We've certainly seen that in, a, in Ukraine, haven't we? How many tanks have the Russians purportedly lost until now? A lot, a lot. Probably 20 times as many tanks as we've got in the whole Australian army. Okay, and that's just tanks. Okay, mass is back and we will be required at some point in the future to be part of a battle space where mass is very important. Doesn't remove the need for cleverness and good leadership, but size matters matters again okay we just thought it didn't for a while while we're off in Afghanistan and Iraq doing small platoon company size operations for short periods of time okay that's not the historic norm all right and fires I mean if there's one message out of Ukraine have as much as possible okay and that's not to you know say Jimmy Groves should have five brigades of artillery under him but boy, haven't we relearned an old lesson. Now, when I, was a, when I was a young captain in the Australian Army, we were looking at getting rid of artillery, as in getting rid of it as a core and as a capability. That was the kind of mindset pervaded our army in the 1990s. I'm so glad that army's gone. We're totally opposite now, okay? 
and with these canines that are coming, with HIMARS that are coming, and hopefully a range of other longer range strike systems, and hopefully a lot more canines than we planned, um, we should be able to be a pretty effective organisation. All right, third trend, the fight for influence. The reality is violence and influence have always been two sides of a coin. And it doesn't matter whether you're a platoon leader, company commander, battle group commander, brigade commander, division, national leader. Influence is a really important part of your job. There's lots of ways you can do it. Sometimes the best way to influence that person is to shoot that one. It doesn't have to be clever algorithms or leaflet drops. Your job, regardless of where you are, is always this balance of violence and influence. The things that have changed now is that the ability to recognise and then divide up target populations and then target them very precisely with tuned messages is unprecedented in human history. And then to be able to measure the impact. We can do that in a way now that has never existed before. Right? Whether it's national level or at the lowest level. I mean, you've all read about morale problems in the Russian military, right? A lot of that is because the Ukrainians have been messing with their minds from day one. Whether it's social media, whether it's been deep targeting and killing their logistics. They've been playing with their minds. They've understood this really well. But at the same time, they've done it right from the top. Their president, who everyone had written off 12 months ago, was some failed, or not a failed, but a former comedian and dancing with the stars kind of person, wasn't going to be up to it as president. Well, weren't they all wrong? And he understands the power of performance and the power of global influence. And he's leveraged that not just to unify his own people, but also to unify large parts of the West to support his country and to keep it alive. Okay. That's about leadership. Leadership is influence at its, at its most core. Okay. We're seeing it constantly. But it's not just governments, it's just, not just military institutions that you, in thinking about combined arms, must be, need to be aware of. I mean, social media is pervasive. It doesn't matter how much we ban people from taking mobile devices in the field, people are going to be influenced by social media. But you can also leverage it. I mean, how much targeting, how much BDA, is being able to be done through social media that we're seeing done live almost through Ukraine. So it is both a threat but also an opportunity. Signatures. Who knows what the signature of, say, their subunit is in the field? Anyone ever thought about it? What are the various elements of the signature of a subunit in the field? Anyone want to take a guess? Yeah. 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 Okay. What else? Exhaust. All the all the vehicles have exhaust, right? You can pick all that up. Rubbish. Someone taking a crap behind a tree. I mean, there are 
layers and layers and layers of signatures of deployed units that we as an army have not really come to grips with. Okay, now with mesh sensor networks using both civil and military these days, it's getting much, much more difficult to hide yourself. Okay, you've got to think about it. Invest in measuring all your signatures. Think about how you can reduce them, but also how you can use your signatures, your measured signatures to project them and deceive people. Okay. As we've seen in Ukraine, from multiples of these Russian headquarters, if you have a signature that stands out, you're gonna get hit because you've just made yourself a really attractive and simple target. Think about your signatures. Like I talked before, this detection to destruction time is going like this constantly, okay? Do signature management, take it really seriously. And your deception plan is not an annex, okay? Your deception plan is you thinking about how you're gonna mess with the mind of the commander you're up against. Signatures are part of it. How do you project in an adversary commander's mind the kind of signature that you want them to see to get the behavior out of them that you want. It's all built into signature management, signature measurement and projection. All right, only a couple more human machine teaming. Um, the army obviously has come quite a way in the use of its robotics aerial ground over the last couple of decades. We're still not where we need to be. Still a lot of work to be done on how we integrate uncrewed and crewed systems, and that's with everything, whether it's logistics, medical evacuation, reconnaissance, the close fight, all these things will see us teamed with autonomous systems. Who's heard of the Ripshaw tank? Okay, Ripshaw tank is a tank that's been designed for the US Army. It's an uncrewed tank. And they're gonna have these working with normal main battle tanks. Okay, and you can use them for lots of things. You might use them for killing the enemy. You might use them as a deception plan. You might use them to generate a signature so your crude signatures are lower. Okay, you are going to see these things invest in understanding them. What are we seeing in Ukraine? Well, not as much as I thought. Certainly, uncrewed aerial vehicles have been very popular, both military and civil. Who's seen the DJI drones with the 240 mil gold tips on them? You know, they put them out there. Man, if you're in a company command post, a battalion command post, that would really spoil your day, just one of those things. Imagine having hundreds or thousands of things of these things in the air. Well, the Ukrainians and Russians have dozens of systems of different ranges and of different sensor capabilities and of different payloads. What are you reading? What are you seeing about those things? How's that gonna change how you think? How's that change tactics? Because all our tactics at the moment are about humans leading and doing stuff using tools, whether the tool's a tank or a truck or a rifle. How do our tactics change once you're talking about autonomous and semi-autonomous systems and there's hundreds or thousands of them? How do you train with them? 
Well, I don't know, because the army doesn't have a system for training people and machines that can think together or appear to think or match some of our cognitive systems. All right, this goes to the heart of what Greg Bilton was saying this morning, integrated thinking and action where you align things on the ground with what government's trying to achieve. Okay, the Chinese actually in under-restricted warfare described this really well back in 1999 and that is their blueprint for everything they've done since. If you have a chance, read Unrestricted Warfare. It is a masterful study of the integration of all elements of a military with bits of national power. And the message for a combined arms team leader is everything you do has a context. Everything, whether it's a joint, whether it's a national, whether it's a coalition, everything you do has context and that becomes part of your purpose. We've seen in Ukraine where they've been able to integrate stuff. It works. Ukrainians have had a pretty integrated air defence environment. I mean, nearly six months later, the Russians don't own Ukrainian airspace, even though their air force is about 12 times the size of Ukraine's. It's insane. Pretty sure the Ukrainian chief army is not sending Ukrainian chief air force a Christmas card this year. Okay, the Ukrainians have integrated combined arms in a way the Russians just haven't been able to. I mean, the problem of dismounted anti-tank teams was recognised in the Arab-Israeli wars and the start of the 1970s and the US Army spent a decade coming up with a whole range of tactics and systems to prevent these dismounted anti-tank teams having an impact. There's no secret here, the Russians just forgot it. And there's a whole range of things with very light numbers of infantry and BTGs all the way through. But the integration effect of combined arms joint is a very powerful force multiplier. Okay, so I'll finish up with just some observations, what I think you might take from this, how you might think as a combined arms team leader or planner or member. Um, firstly, this is really important for lots of reasons, not just about combined arms team leading. But remember, you're a professional, okay? This ain't nine to five. And this is something that if you're going to do, you've got to be the best at. Okay? Be best in the world at this. Okay? As I'll say in a later slide, there are no silver medals in this. There's gold medal or you're dead. Ask those few hundred Russians who died in that river crossing. They got the silver medal. Not a good medal to get in those circumstances. And being a professional means continuous learning, constant you go home, you're reading, okay? We all have competing priorities in our life, but you can't expect that everything that you need to know is gonna be delivered to you in this environment or in a unit. You've gotta get out and do some of your own learning. That's what professionals do. It's not a vocation, it's a profession. This is really important. Who's not reading a book at the moment? I know, there's some people who are too embarrassed to put their hands up. Reading is how you keep up with what's going on in the world. It's changing real quick. No intelligence organisation is going to keep you up to date with everything that's going on or everything you need to know. It's not going to give you all the context. You've got to do your own reading. And it allows you to develop a critical mindset so you can interpret and think through the kind of things that are being presented to you. 
There's all kinds of reading lists out there. I'm sure your brigade commander's put out one. The army has one. There's lots of different ones out there. But keep reading. Keep reading because it keeps you current. Jim Mattis, very famous for his reading habits, had a massive, massive library. Um, and like I said, I was never caught flat-footed because I could always reach back into some historical situation where this had happened before. And that's important because even when you're surprised, if you can fight through the shock of surprise quickly by reaching into your education, you're going to save more of your people's lives. That's a ripsaw, ripsaw tank. Great name, I love it. But that's what the Americans are going to start deploying. Okay? The Chinese and Russians already have them. I'm surprised the Russians haven't used them in Ukraine, but it doesn't mean they won't. But you've got to understand some of these new technologies. Build your technological literacy. What does a hypersonic missile mean for you? It means you don't have a lot of time, and it means traditional command and control systems can't keep up. What do really sophisticated artificial intelligence algorithms mean? Well, they can mean a lot of things if we we're very clever. It could help you simulate a company attack 20 times before you actually have to do it. It could help you with analysis. It could recognise things in reports at you because you've been up for 27 hours and haven't had a feed and you're wet and cold. Might miss. Okay? understand some of these technologies. This is a really important one. And I used to see some things that used to drive me crazy in Army. I hate pass-fail things on courses. And the reason I hate it is because it means you're not fostering the right kinds of competitive environments on courses. Okay, individual training is about imparting knowledge, giving you time outside the unit to reflect on things, build cohorts, but also understand the right kinds of competitive behaviour. Not the wrong kinds, but the right kinds. And if you don't like the competitive environment on a course, you're really going to hate the real ultimate competition where someone's shooting at you. Okay, so it's about resilience as well. Building competitive spirit. Now, this is a recent... Doctrin uh, doctrinal publication put out by the Marines. It is excellent. It's a short read, probably take you 15 minutes to read. Like most Marine Corps publications, they're actually really well written. They don't use big words and they avoid lexicon and jargon that even I don't understand half the time. Okay. Have arguments. Have professional discussions where you disagree. It's okay. It's professional. Put up different ideas and discuss them. The worst thing we can do is be like Canberra, which is where everyone's colleagues, which means lowest common denominator decisions are the norm, and we're never moving forward any more than a millimetre at a time. That is no good in a professional institution. We have to, if needs be, leap forward, and you only do that by discussions where lots of different Opinions are heard, discussed, and argued over. Has anyone read this book by Martin Dempsey? It is one of the best books on leadership I've ever read. And the reason why it's so good is I work for him in Iraq. 
He is the best leader I've ever seen. He's the best army officer, the best combat leader, and the best leader I've ever seen by a very long way. And he can belt out an old Irish crooning love song like nothing else as well. This book, and there's also a podcast that goes with it, No Time for Spectators, he reaches into his own career all the way back to when he was a young cavalry lieutenant on the German border back in the old Cold War days. And he has this thing here, nurture responsible rebellion. Okay, we don't want automatons. We want people who can think for themselves and recognise opportunity and present the case for change. Or do stuff and beg forgiveness later. Now, you can get in trouble for that. I know. It's happened to me a few times. But he's saying, please, innovate. Be rebellious, but do it in an institutionally responsible way. Okay? If I was to recommend... I'll recommend more than one book, but this is a really good one if you have a chance on leadership at every level, from lieutenant to four-star general. Mr. Karap there, or General Karap. Nothing will happen until 1941. Said this on 4 May 1940. What happened six days later? About a million Germans decided to come and holiday in France for the next four and a half years. Okay, anticipate surprise. Always war game. What could go wrong? Where is an enemy likely to want to mess with my mind to surprise me? Because remember, generating surprise is important, but it's the shock after surprise which is the really vital thing that you want, right? Because that's where the adversary, the enemy, is out of their minds. They're not able to generate a coherent effect and that's where you can destroy them. You don't want people doing that to you. So train around surprise. Assume you're going to get surprised as much as you're going to try and prevent it. Assume it's going to happen. So train your people through the shock that follows surprise. Make that period as short as possible. Make life as difficult as possible for the enemy when they do surprise you. Okay, But just assume it. Embrace chaos because there is so much opportunity in there. Design it into your training, please. All right, and this is the most important thing a leader provides, purpose. What's a mission? Task and purpose. Tasks are important, but anyone can give a task. Purpose, now that's some really serious Jedi skills, giving good purpose because it's purpose that allows mission command, it's purpose that allows people to innovate, and it's purpose that inspires people when things are at their worst. And generally in the army, as after a few days out bush, things are always at their worst, right? Purpose matters. If people understand why they're being asked to do something, they'll always go that extra mile. But if they're just being given task after task, and there's no connective tissue, there's no overriding logic, things are always more difficult. But to give good, clear purpose, you've got to be well-read. You've got to know what's going on. You've got to have a good relationship with your subordinates and your superiors and have an open flow of information. If you're a CO, you need to be in your commander's mind. And I'll talk about that when we get into design, planning and execution. But purpose is everything. Always provide purpose.
And if you don't understand the purpose for something you're being asked to do, ask. So important. All right, in conclusion. This is a great quote from the late Sir Michael Howard, served as a captain in the Second World War in the British Army, became uh, one of the most outstanding scholars and war historians of the post-World War II era. And he gave this presentation in 1973, and he, he had this quote, and I'll let you read it for, himself, for yourselves. But this was all about military leaders should be those not trying to hold on to old traditions and protect extant ways of doing business just because that's the way it's always been done. They should be people who are willing to try things, who are looking at new ways of doing business, new organisations. And he called them the intelligent surf riders spotting the essential currents in a sea, which is certainly disturbed and no means friendly, but on which if they're skillful enough, we'll be, we will survive or they will survive. And that's your job, right? As combined arms leaders, you need to be the intelligent surf riders. Thank you, I'm happy to take any questions. I'll just get some water, mate. All right, sir. Hold on. So the first question comes from uh, Captain James McLean of uh, Seven Sisby here in the room this afternoon. Uh, do you think the Army has the cumulative technical knowledge as an organisation to successfully uh, develop, integrate and sustain upcoming advanced tech? such as advanced manufacturing, robotics, and autonomous systems? Uh, if no, how can we effectively train and go after this uh, shortfall? Uh, where's James? Where are you? Hello, mate. Thanks for that. Um, my answer to that is yes. I'll caveat it, though. Um, yes, because in the 30, well, 29-odd thousand people we have in the Army and the 10 or 12,000 we've got in the Reserve Force, we have an amazing array of skilled people just not all of them are in a job where they can use their skills. There's a bunch of people out there who are doing 3D printing at home, right? There's a bunch of people out there who are probably writing code which is nothing to do with that. I think the big thing Army should be looking at is looking at what are the skills already resident in the Army and how do we apply those? Um, the other thing is that the flash to bang from idea to bringing in new equipment is just too long, right? How long does it take to buy a new truck? Pretty long time. Well, it depends. If you're in the army, you know, 50 times longer than a civilian does because we've got to design it to perfection. We've got to make sure the process removes all risk, which is totally unnatural and inhuman. There's no such thing as no risk. And that's for a truck. And then when we get it, we go, oh, wow, the axle weight is a bit heavy for that road. Why don't we think of that? Or we go, oh, we forgot to buy simulators. Huh, we'd never have thought of that in the 21st century. Um, so a lot of our processes that we now have for acquisition are perfect for 1991. Okay, it's not how the world works anymore. So I think we do have skills in our people. We've got to use them right. Um, we've got to place more value on ideas than equipment because I think we've become obsessed 
with some of the new equipment and under-obsessed with the tactics, the concepts and the new organisations to use them. Um, but I think our people are a tremendous reservoir of skills and knowledge, if only we know how to kind of wring all that out of our people. But you've got to nurture the environment where people are allowed to speak up. So the second question comes from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Marcus Luciani here from uh, the Cove team uh, in the room. Um, obviously, uh, understanding the way the fight in the Ukraine has unfolded, what is the most urgent action we need to take as army to make sure we're as ready as we can be for our next conflict? Sure. Uh, get out of all these natural disaster uh, commitments. Get out of aged people home. Get out of, you know, soldiers carrying bags during COVID was awful. Um, particularly when there were millions of people at home on JobKeeper doing nothing who could have been doing that. So, you know, we need to reset our mindset around war fighting. I mean, CJOPS was really explicit on this, right, wasn't he? He's was like, we need to get to the core business. You don't wear that uniform to carry bags or check passes at the border. You know, I remember coming across the border a couple of times and saying, you poor buggers, how did you get shafted with that idiotic job standing on the border? Like, it shouldn't happen. We need to get back into what your core job is, what you're paid to do, what you are supposed to be a professional at, which is close combat, preparing for it and winning at it. And by the way, winning, a good word, okay? Because what's the alternative for a soldier? Not winning? That's a dumb euphemism. You're supposed to be focused on close combat within a joint coalition force and winning. And if you're not doing that, there want to be a really good reason why. And it's pretty hard to see what they might be at the moment. Particularly given the threat and the lack of time we have to build a real deterrent against authoritarian coercion and potentially something far more serious in the next few years. Uh, so the next question comes from uh, Major Selinski from 8 and 9 area, again in the room. Uh, with the yeah, increasing uh, sense of urgency to prepare a land force to conduct large-scale combat operations with the multi-domain environment in the uh, Southeast Asian and Southwest Pacific regions against a near-peer threat, mm. um, how do you see that Army needs to rapidly transform itself um, in terms of structure and training in a joint warfighter um, component? Uh, and if so, do you see this happening within the next year or so, or will we revert back to doing more of the same or what we've always done? Uh, furthermore, how do you see this transformation actually occurring uh, mm. if it occurs? Yeah, there's a, a constant argument. When I was a brigade commander, there was a constant argument. Are brigades designed to spit out battle groups or are they fighting formations? Well, I think it's easy. Brigades are fighting formations. They're not some admin construct that you know, sends people away on courses and maybe spits out a ballot. It's a fighting formation. Now, it may not have everything it wants, but it's got everything it's got, okay? And we need to fight it above, above brigade, okay? We need to be able to fight at division and above. That is the scale of war we are looking at, okay? Now, we've done it before, you know? Second World War, we had 13 divisions in the field at one point. Okay, plus a whole air force in Europe, a whole air force in Australia, and another one in the first tactical air force. Okay, and our population was a third of what we got now. 
So this rubbish about we can't recruit people, it's bunkum, we're just not trying hard enough and we're not giving the right people the right purpose. But the threat is there. We need to think at a scale that we haven't for a very long time. Okay. You can raise big organisations quickly if you want to. If you are smart about what you're training in. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that we're forced to do in training institutions, which is governance and stuff that actually is not going to be relevant in the fight. If you pick the really important things to build a cohesive combat organisation, you'd be amazed what you might be able to drop out. Okay, the Brits are doing basic training for Ukrainians and they've come up with a three-week course. Okay, better than the three days a lot of these poor buggers are getting before they go to the front line. Probably not as much as we'd like. I reckon about six weeks you could crack it. But we really need to think differently about what is it we absolutely need to survive on the modern battlefield in your first three fights. That's all you've got to do. Survive your first couple of fights and then the, the learning that you've got in those gets you through after that. That's what training systems are about, right? They build teams and they allow you to survive the first couple of fights. What does that look like? Does it look like a fully disaggregated units do all individual and collective training and lots of time behind video screens? Or does it look like something that's more sophisticated and thoughtful? I'm sure there's people out there that got some good ideas about it. But to get back to the answer, even if you're not fighting at brigade and division, you better be shooting it. You better be simulating it, better thinking about it. Because if you're a battalion commander now, five years you could be a brigade commander or higher. That's just how it happens once you get into the thick of things. Thanks, Sue. Sorry, mate. No, well, the next question's uh, from Major Lee Sapwell, uh, again, here in the room from 7 CSR. Really? Get on, mate. Uh, considering Australia's inability to make their own uh, HE munitions uh, and the requirement to participate in uh, foreign military sales, mm. the significant delays, uh, does the Australian defence industry need to invest more in stockpiling current holdings uh, and invest more in our onshore um, building of those capabilities? Um, and do you see this as being a double-edged sword? So we're building our stockpiles uh, to be seen as a threat in our near region. Uh, and also, does the defence industry need to expedite um, all procurement procedures? And how do you see that playing out? So yes to everything. Um, <laughs> um, Benalla actually is one of only nine uh, sophisticated HE factories on the planet. So we actually build this stuff in Australia. But it gets put in things that we don't build. Like up until now, we haven't even been able to do the forging of a dumb 155 round. I mean, like a chicken can do that. But we've decided to buy it offshore and have one ship come in every two years with our artillery ammunition. That is, that is not viable. It's not viable during COVID. It's certainly not going to be viable when you're at war. This big factory in Maribara will fix some of that. Um, but, you know, this HE plant in Vanilla is getting upgraded. Uh, we were selling it like crazy to the Americans, all the, everything that we weren't using. Um, but it's still not at the scale and doesn't possess the redundancy that you're going to need for a much bigger force. Just your training use of ammunition in an expanded force, which we're going to have to do in the coming years, will be markedly more than we use in a two or three year period at the moment. So just to train a force, you need to expand your capacity. You then need stocks. Who tracks how many... Uh, 152, 155 rounds the Ukrainians or the Russians use on a daily basis. Yeah, 
You should, because what's the largest class of supply on the battlefield generally? Artillery ammunition, historically. Have, read history. Artillery ammunition is probably the largest class by volume and weight of supply on the battlefield. You know, you ever heard of an ASP? There's a reason there's such a thing as an ASP because it's almost its own logistic system. It's such a massive burden on a tactical logistic system when it plugs into operational strategic log. Um, who's building that much ammunition at the moment? No one. The Americans are gonna change, the Europeans are gonna have to change because in 1991 when the war came down and we cut military forces, industrial production was also cut. There were good reasons for it, we just couldn't afford to keep all the defence industries, but we're gonna have to slowly build it back up. But we're not gonna have 30 years to do that. So it's about prioritisation, it's about having a national strategy to rebuild the capacity to, you know, what do we build? What do we get off trusted suppliers? What do we get off the global market? We haven't even got that kind of decision yet, and that's the first thing we need. Australians are pretty smart. We can build a lot of stuff, and we have. Like, if we're going to build a nuclear submarine, there is nothing more sophisticated than that on the planet. Okay, nothing. If you can build that, you can build everything else that comes beneath it. Okay, once again, we just got to decide to do it. That's the thing. So the next question comes from uh, Captain uh, Elise Glynn from one in battalion here in the room. Uh, the US and NATO's abstinence from the Russo-Ukrainian war has highlighted the lack of global appetite for a world war. Do you think this will change in uh, possibly in future conflicts? I'm pretty sure no one wants a world war. Um, so I hope the appetite for no world war is carried forward. Um, but these things happen whether you want them or not sometimes, right? They happen not because you calculate going into one, they happen because you miscalculate. And if you have a look at uh, um, Speaker Pelosi's visit to uh, Taipei in the next 48 hours, that's no secrets in all the news. I mean, that could, there's potential there, low probability, but there's certainly potential there for a series of different actions, reactions, and escalations that could go to places where both the US and China don't want them to go, but they go anyway, right? If you just have a look at the current situation where President Xi is in the lead up to the party Congress in October, where he wants to be crowned as the people's leader, uh, third, third five-year term, which is unprecedented in modern Chinese history. Um, he's got an economic downturn growing at 0.4%. He's got lots of COVID lockdowns. Things are really sensitive for him right now. Even in an authoritarian regime like that, um, one more thing like this could be really, really dangerous for him. Um, so, you know, you can see how these things could potentially get out of control. Uh, our responsibility, like we're not gonna impact, you know, I can't pick up the phone and say, hey, Nancy, please, just can you put off your trip by a few weeks? That'd be helpful. Um, we gotta be ready for what might come. Okay, we need to make sure our minds are steeled that the worst could happen tonight. You know, uh, the Americans in Hawaii, 25th Infantry Division, talk about fight tonight. This isn't just a readiness thing where you're doing readiness checks, picking out socks out of your sec trunk or this kind of stuff. It's, it's a mental approach 
we are not surprised. We go, ah, okay, no, we're expecting that, let's go. Okay, all right, Chinese have nuked here. Okay, we got up, we're at war. It's like fight through that shock of surprise and be able to do your job quickly. Okay, um, is there gonna be a world war? Yeah, probably, some point in the future. Next decade, next hundred years. There's always another war, right? It's just when, not if. Um, I think we're in a very dangerous period between now and 2030. I think um, 2024 will be a very dangerous year. The US presidential election is going to be a time of great uncertainty. It'll be a time when the Chinese look at it as an opportunity to exploit uncertainty. And it's also the year of the next Taiwanese election. So 2024 and the period between 2030 are going to be very, very difficult for us to navigate. Um, after that, the Chinese window of opportunity starts closing, but the next eight years is going to be extraordinarily difficult in global security terms. And that's just what we can foresee. And we all know we never pick the next war, right? Democracies have a perfect track record of never picking the next war. Okay, which is another reason why the anti-tank mafia always frustrate me, because they seem to have this arrogance that they can perfectly predict the next war. Um, you just can't. So. Uh, I'm optimistic that as humans we try to avoid the next world war, but our track record as humans over the last five years indicates that every now and then we get it wrong. And that's what we're for. Or you're for, sorry. Not me, I just sit by the beach and watch it on TV now. So, so the next question uh, reflects on your comments around mass. Uh, and again from uh, James McLean at the back there. Um, do you Where think are you it's James? Hello, mate. There you are, erstwhile engineer. Uh, do you think it's better to procure a small amount of brilliant, expensive, exquisite platforms um, or a large amount of reliable, cheap and repairable platforms um, in uh, moving forward towards the uh, future conflict? None of your comments on mass. Yep. And did, do you think the ADF will maintain its current plan to procure more and more complex and uh, exquisite platforms? I'm going to quote Peter Quill and say a bit of both. Um, you actually do need both. It's, it's a, a risk mitigation strategy. You can't totally remove risk. Um, there are some missions that autonomous systems just won't work for or not, won't work for exclusively. Um, some of the really, really high-end exquisite systems, um, you've seen some people saying we need B21s. Um, you go, well, what are they going to work for? Are they going to be a deterrent when you've got five of them? Um, you know, we need to understand that Australia, even though it's the 12th largest economy in the world, we can't have a champagne taste in defence capability when we've pretty much got a Bundaberg rum budget. All right? So, so what's the Bundaberg rum budget solution for the ADF look like? Noting that we never predict the next war correctly. So you can't just say, well, Taiwan doesn't need the army, so we're just going to invest in the Air Force and Navy, like some people saying. So well, Taiwan might be the next thing, but it may not be. You know, when I was a young captain in the 1990s and the army was doing nothing except going bush and drinking heavily, um, you know, I did not foresee that I would do Iraq, Afghanistan, East Timor in the space of six years. I didn't foresee that I'd even go to any of those countries in my whole life. So, you know, we've got to hedge our bets on the kind of contingencies that we might need to have, and it, take, it will need a balance of people, low-end equipment, high-end equipment, and lots of good ideas and adaptive organisations. I think that's the real solution there. 
And that allows you, once something happens and you're surprised, you can kind of adapt, okay? And you can use what you've got to tailor your response. If you only got a few high-end systems, boy, your adaptation space is really, really small. If you've got a few different things, you've got a larger adaptation envelope. And that's what we as a military organisation are supposed to be excellent at, is being able to adapt to what comes. Uh, the next question comes from uh, CL89, Lieutenant Colonel uh, John Eccleston. Hey, John. Uh, so we use the term combined arms from the tactical to the uh, strategic, maybe adding a joint or integrator where we can. Um, has the term morphed too far and now describes creative problem solving? Uh, my reality in operations would say I've done creative problem solving, not so much combined arms. Uh, form and function is important and training as we fight is important. So we, do we need to change or be more careful how we throw, away the, uh, throw around the term of combined arms? I mean, me, when I think combined arms is pretty well defined um, in a few of our doctrinal publications, I just use them. Um, try not to expand the definition too much. Just, it's Army does combined arms, right? That's what we do. We do it for the deep, the close, the rear battle. Um, and you do it before, during and after. You know, and combined arms is more than just a fight. It's being all in the same mess together. It's like going and having lunch together, doing PME together, doing shoots together, doing stuff together to build trust and understanding and knowledge of each other. So when it comes to it, it's like, oh, I'm not working with Bravo Company 89 or working with A Squadron, whatever. I'm working with such and such combat team. And then when we regroup, we're going to work with that combat team. Okay. So I haven't seen combined arms used for some of these examples, and that seems a bit, I won't use a term I'm thinking of, but not clever. Um, combined arms is what Army does to win the close fight. Okay, we fight as a team. It's the only way to fight. So the last question uh, for this session is from uh, Captain Lim of, uh, of One Regiment uh, here in the room. Yep. Hello, mate. Uh, so the uh, Russian-Ukraine war has highlighted the significant issues of uh, logistics sustainment, uh, which you mentioned some before in Class mm. 5. Uh, and with the uh, future introduction of more complex capabilities, will we see a greater progression for our own logistics capabilities? And how can we best plan to anticipate logistics requirements and some of those threats that we've observed against the Russian logistics trains? So what you're saying is log as Annex Z to the op plan is no longer good enough? No. Um, you know, who knew that soldiers wanted to eat and shoot their rifles on operations? I mean, what a new lesson. Um, yeah, I, I mean, some of the analysts on this logistics question have been, um, I think it's been puerile and adolescent, I mean, logistics is a core part of our business. Like it's not something you pull the loggies in after, and I'll talk about this in planning, it's like logistics, fighting, uh, integral partners. And if the loggies aren't in the room from day one or even beforehand, you're not gonna be successful. Like that's, that's easy, that's 100% given. Um, now, we don't always act on that, you know, sometimes when you do your captain's or your major's courses and you're out there doing a chute and you're manoeuvring around and you've got arrows coming up here and doing fire plans and electronic warfare and all this kind of stuff and they say, oh, what's your log plan? You go, uh, 
uh, that's in Annex B, I'll produce that later. And they go, yeah, no worries, B+. Plus. I mean, you can't do that, right? But I've seen it happen. Now, I, I remember being on a shoot as a major at Canungra, um, and I understand that I don't want to do that anymore, but it's a really good place to do this. And one of my infantry friends, you know, we asked the question, oh, what's the log support plan? He says, log shit, I don't worry about that. And the instructor just thought it was funny. It's like, really? That ain't a professional impulse. Um, it is, log isn't just a science and an art, it's a mindset in a professional institution where non-loggies have to be thinking about it as well, all the time. I mean, Jimmy over here, he's thinking log all the time, otherwise he's got no bombs, right? Well, no one's fixing the M777s, which are a bloody nightmare, okay? So it's a mindset, first and foremost, and it needs to be something you are constantly banging the drum on. Because people forget, right? Because they get involved in their own stuff and their own units. It's a mindset and you've all got to have it. Okay, just like influence, you've all got to have it. I know brains are getting pretty full right now, but that's, that's why this is a profession, not a vocation. It's hard, not easy. And all these things are non-discretionary parts of it. Thanks, mate. Thanks, sir. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that will conclude the, uh, the first of the two briefs from Major General Ryan this afternoon. Um, for those on the live stream, uh, please rejoin uh, at around about 14.30. We'll kick off with the next, uh, the next briefing, which focuses more on the, the planning level um, at the uh, brigade and below headquarters. Um, for those seated, uh, please remain seated, and we'll just hand over to the Cove now as we go offline. Thank you. <laughs>